On this episode of the Tough Juice Podcast, I had none other than my good friend Rex Chapman, Mr. Blocker Charge himself. And we got into all things. We talked about his journey, you know, playing for Kentucky, one of his favorite players growing up, the great, late, great West Unsell Sr. And we also dove into some of his biggest moments in his professional career. The dunk contest, deep brown going like this over the top. And we also dove deep into social issues and how he's been using this platform for good to find the silver lining. And the Bluegrass Foundation, giving back in a major way in the midst of COVID and all these things happening in the world. You do not want to miss this episode. Check out the Tough Juice podcast on Apple, my YouTube channel, or wherever you get your pods. How you been? Uh, come on. Anytime, anything for you. I'm good. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm funky. Uh, to be honest, I'm funky right now. I mean, uh, I can only imagine. Well, we'll, talk, we'll get into it. Yeah, yeah. I, I do want to get into it because yeah. clearly I want to talk about basketball and yeah. all those things, but I also want to talk about just the climate and, and yeah, and being visually. And you've been like, you know, out there, you know, speaking on everything. Yeah. I appreciate you for doing that. I know, bro. I How know. you feeling? Uh, all right. You know, I'm trying to go around here uh, speaking and stuff. It's hard, though, man. It's just <laughs> – you know, I mean, it's the South. It's the yeah. South. And uh, anyway, yeah. But I'm I'm hanging shit. I got, I'm white. What can be better right now? That's crazy, man. <laughs> like people like really like stuck in their ways in spite of everything that you see. Really feel. Uh, I I'm personally, I see, I, I you know, look, I, I found out that I have friends that voted for Trump, of course, uh, you know, I, for four years, I've had fun saying to them, you know, so you voted for Trump. And they're like, yeah, yeah. I go, do you feel dumber? You know, so I fuck with them like that. And uh, but what I found is that over over the last and it's a shame it's taken this long. But over the course of the pandemic, the people that were on the fence about him, the reasonable Republicans, I feel like they're they don't feel him. So. I'm hopeful in that regard, but shit. That was one of my next things I was going to ask you. Uh, yeah. For me, right, Are we rolling? Are we rolling? We're kicking it. It's like oh, the okay, reason, okay. My the reason I, was, I was hopeful is because for the first time in my lifetime, and I know you're a little bit older than me, but not that much, that I've seen across 50 states, over 18 countries, everybody was engaged just on civil justice and all the isms in the world. And that's why I remain hopeful. But then I still see these visuals of black men getting shot down, black women getting shot down. People, yeah. you know, still feeling a certain way about these issues. Mm-hmm. So are you still hopeful in that space? Like after you seeing all the things that still happen? I am. I, I'm frightened. You know, I'm frightened for, you know, it seems like what's going on is, uh, you know, the, the main guy is is stoking fear. Uh, I mean, he's, that's what he's preaching. And that that bothers me because it does feel like he's, you know, he's trying to incite violence. And that that's that's troublesome. But you said it. I am a little older than you. But Quran, I've not seen anything like this. Not in my lifetime. I've been on Earth 52 years now. You know, I remember just a very little bit about the Watts riots when I was little, little, like four or five years old. Uh, and then, of course, we went through, you know, Rodney King and 
all that OJ, all that stuff over the years, but it's never been like this. It's never been like this. And it's never, you know, well, also we've never had a, a president like this yeah. and not in my, in my lifetime. And maybe, maybe people are trying to overcorrect for, you know, we had Obama for eight years. <laughs> I just, it, it amazes me, Quran. I hear it from people all the time. They say, I say, well, you know, I feel like there's a lot of racism going on. And, and they'll be like, well, Obama. I said, what about Obama? And they said, we elected a black president. I said, yeah, that doesn't mean racism is over. Just like if we'd have elected Hillary, sexism wouldn't have been over. I mean, you know, it's like getting married. You don't get married and you just stop working at your marriage. No, you get married and you that's when it starts. And you got to continue to improve and learn and negotiate and be a good teammate. And if you can't, if you can't do that. And the other thing that I'll say, and then I'll, I'll stop for a second. I've never understood for the life of me since I've been little people that they don't not caring, not caring about another person's plight because it doesn't directly impact yourself is a really shitty way to go through life, in my opinion. Right. I mean, I, it, it's a very hollow, in my opinion, a very hollow way to go through life. I mean, I, look, I'm, I, I hit the lottery, man. I was an athletic white guy, uh, a white guy. I know what my privilege is. I've gotten I've gotten so many chances and I had so many chances as a kid that, it, you know, guys I grew up with uh, in the projects didn't have. I mean, I, I was going home to meals every day. Some of my teammates, uh, you know, growing up who lived in the projects, they might have one meal that day. They might they might have only two rooms in the whole apartment and there's nine of them and maybe, you know, no heat in the winter for a little while, no air in the summer for a little while. Also, you know, I remember how we used to get invited to camps. Remember, that was a big deal, uh, I, or at least my era was, you know, even if you got if you got invited to five star or it was called BC blue chip camp, some of those back in the day, that was a big deal. But also you still had to pay most guys. If you're a freshman, sophomore, you still had to pay one hundred and fifty dollars or something. I got to do that. My boys didn't get to do that. And so right away, there's a separator there. And yeah, maybe I would have gone on and been better than those guys anyway. But at that time, when we're 14 or 15, my boy, Avery Taylor, Marcus Robinson, David Hogg, they were just as good as I was. But then I went and I got some exposure. And now recruiters. Also, I was made to get my grades. I was made to get my grades. And a lot of my buddies, you know, they were left to, to fend for themselves. And I, if, if nobody would have been pushing me to get my grades, I would have flunked out. I didn't care. I, and I, I hate to admit that, but anyway. I'm glad, I'm, look, I'm glad you're being, you know, just authentic and real about it because I think that initially I penned an article uh, in the Players' Tribune that said – I remember it's beautiful. beautiful. It's yeah. a weak thing. And the only way we can get to where we're trying to go is, you know – you coming from your background, I'm coming from my background and my perspective, and we're giving both our observation, and then we're coming to uh, the realization that it is a problem. And I think that we can do that because 
when live sports and live entertainment was taken away, all the distractions that we would usually or traditionally get distracted by was taken away. So we had to really deal That's with right. the observation of what was really happening in our mm -hmm. world and in our climate. So I think that's how we got here, you know. Uh, yeah. Really, COVID. Oh, I do but, too. Yeah, but you know, now that we're doing this, and now that you see guys, you know, like yourself, myself, LeBron James, so many other guys, mm -hmm. using their platform on social media, is filling their timelines with, you know, systemic issues and all yeah. that we need to do, and make sure you vote. Why is it so important for people to use their platform like that? Man, you know, and this goes back to the whole peaceful protesting thing, man. You know, uh, they jumped on Colin Kaepernick and it was it wasn't political. He was peacefully protesting. And here's here's the other thing that, that just really gets me, Karan. And, you you know, we we didn't play together. We're not even really in the same era. Um, but the second that you and I worked together, it was like we played together. I love you. You love me. It, it's all good. It's like we played together because we know mutual people that yeah. have vouched for one another. Right. Uh, what bothers me the most is I'm a white guy. And and uh, that's not what bothers me the most. But sometimes it does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> Um, what bothers me is how, how the hell am I as a white guy? I'm going to tell you, tell black people how to peacefully protest. How does that look? Yeah, I'm going to tell you, you okay, we want to kneel. Ah, you can get, ah, no, nah, you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. Also, we don't want you to do it at the football game. Also, we don't want you to do it. Back. Well, if I just go home and do it, all right, who's watching? How, how does it and people don't want to hear it. They're like, yeah, but it's messing with my sports and all that stuff. Well, come on, man. We, they play the national anthem. And you know that I, we've talked about it before. They play the national anthem at every game, at every one of our games. And for us, I did. And it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Hmm. I remember used to taking that time to think about my family and, and just, you know, that uh, I'm glad that they can, you know, enjoy getting ready to watch me play. But they don't play the national anthem at concerts. See, what? Why? Why are we mixed? I mean, that's a whole other issue. <laughs> we, we, we make it about sport when it's sports. Come on. So there's a lot of I think issues that are that are there. In the podcast, nice white parents reporter Hannah Jaffe Walt, you may know her from This American Life, started looking to, into a school in her neighborhood after her kids became school age in New York City. Hannah examines this public middle school traditionally filled with black and brown students. After a number of white families arrived, she investigated the school's history and finally realized what kept getting in the way of making the school better. White Parents. Nice White Parents is made by Serial Productions, a New York Times company, the same people who made Serial in S-Town. Launch CTA is now through 819 it's available everywhere wherever you get your pods ben cta 820 and beyond all episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts we got a we, we've got a lot of we've got we've got some issues i am hopeful though because i i see a, a i'm proud uh, and i hate to say this but i'm proud of i'm proud of some other white guys right now i'm proud of steve nash i'm proud of stan van gundy Man. i'm proud of pete carroll I'm proud of guys who are are 
are finally saying, I mean, look, and you know, we've talked, Steve has felt this way for 30 years. I've felt this way for 30 years. Stan Van Gundy has felt this way for 30 years, but 30 years ago, we were in our teens and early twenties and the, the voices and the powers that be, they weren't going to have that. Yeah. They're having to have it now. And I I'm hopeful for in that regard. I also hate, hate that it's taken white people to step up and because it's not about us. I mean, I guess it is. It's a, it, we better learn. We got to be taught. We, I'm hopeful that in a couple months, everybody's going to vote and we're going to start writing this ship. Yeah, man. And, and you know what? I'm, I'm scared about that. The voting process. When I look at the ticket, right. And initially I'm like, I'm definitely going to vote. Right. No matter what I always have, but mm-hmm. a lot of people are looking at it as if one, they vote don't count. And then two, they're voting for the lesser of the two evils. You get what I mean? So, yeah, I do. I do. And 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 that and that part of the part of that bothers me too. Here, here's the other thing, and it, this is not a popular thing to say, but it does bother me. And I, I look, I like, I like uh, Joe. I like Joe Biden. I like, I really like Kamala. Um, I, I, it's just kind of striking to me that in this time of civil unrest, like we have, with so much going on racially that our only two options are two old white guys. Mm. It is right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm saying it as I'm smiling, but huh? With Miss Harris being on the ticket, that may help a little bit. Oh, help. <laughs> no, I'm all in, all in. No, I think, it, I think they couldn't have done a better job. I really do. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. And look, I could have gone for Stacey Abrams. Uh, I could have gone for there were look, there's some sharp ones. I, you know what I want in 10 years? I want a ticket that looks like Killer Mike and Stacey Abrams with Stacey Abrams running as president. That'd be mean right there. Mean. But I'm I'm ready for that. I'm ready. I'm ready for I'm ready for so clearly you don't like you, you you're not voting for Kanye. That's what you're saying. Yeah, Kanye's out. Dude, <laughs> and that's another thing, man. They're taking advantage of that man, I feel like. And and anyway, that's a whole other issue. No, I'm not voting for Kanye. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. <laughs> but, you know, get back to, you know, sports. And, and I want to talk about, you know, your journey as well. But, like, what are you seeing and what are you happy about seeing with the partition of play, you know, back in Orlando? Like, all the players went back to the bubble. You see Black Lives Matter on the floor. You see the the, the beyond symbolic trophy of yeah. the letter and the messages on the jerseys. And then the financial commitment to address the wealth gap with economic inclusion with, you know, black folks and the Latinx community. Like, that's pretty dope, right? Our league taking that pretty, step forward. Pretty dope. I mean, it's the ultimate. You know, the other thing you guys are doing, you guys, are you're showing Michael and you're showing guys in my era, you know, that you can you can have a voice. And and I know a lot of people got on Michael for years about not, you know, he's trying to sell shoes to Democrats and Republicans, all that stuff. Michael was the first guy to make enough money to where people thought he should speak out. And that's unfair. That's unfair. Yeah. 
I'm proud of that dude. You saw his, you saw the whole, you know, Jordan, the doc and all that stuff. You saw him as a freshman at Carolina doing interviews. Remember that? Yeah, man. Scared, scared, shy. Um, he had, he's had to negotiate all of this stuff on his own. And I think he's done a fantastic job, but back to it. Yes. The fact that the voting, the, the, the NBA, all of the owners have said, Hey, come on, we're doing this. I think it's putting huge pressure. It, well, it is definitely putting huge pressure. I'm anxious to see what happens with baseball and football, because I think more dominoes are going to fall. Uh, the, the dam is sort of broken. I think for, People, you know, I think football made a mistake a year or so ago when it, or a few years ago by not standing up to the president. Uh, apparently, they're, they're not having it anymore. I hope. I hope. But I'm proud. I'm, I'm so proud of our league, Karan. And the other part of this, and I'm, you know how the NBA does things. They don't half-ass anything. It's going to be done right. I'm so proud of the guys for going there. And look, that's two months or a couple months anyway away from your families, your friends, your relatives. Um, and then on top of the fact that black and brown people are affected by coronavirus disproportionately, it, it adds a whole other layer to this stuff because, you know, these guys are going to leave the bubble and then they're going to go back to, you know, their families and people are going to see their parents, grandparents, aunts and uncles. Where I really worry about this, though, Quran is for college college sports. Yeah, man. You telling you telling me that okay, the SEC they're going to play their schedule, and the football players who not really getting paid anyway. Uh, you're telling me after games on weekends and stuff, they're not going to see their parents and grandparents. This is dangerous, man. And unless they have a plan. It, my opinion is it, it can't do anything but blow up in their face. This is not a hoax. This is real, man. Yeah. I, I, I think I, I was thinking about it the other day. I think I've, I used to know a person to die once or twice a year. I think I've had 12 people I know die in the last four months. Right? That's it's crazy. Yeah. yeah. Just crazy. Think, about, think about the COVID numbers when you, whenever you turn on whatever news channel, whether you're Republican, a liberal, a Democrat, independent. Yep. You know, it's that number is real. It's a hundred and a thousand and a thousand every day. Yeah. A thousand more every day. It's uh it's scary time. But yeah, I you know, I am I'm I am really proud of the league. You know, also too, I'm I'm proud of the way it looks. Yeah. Can you believe they pulled this off like this? <laughs> I mean, I, I you haven't been there, right? I haven't been there. Uh I can only imagine it's weird for the players somewhat. But visually, it looks great. Visually, visually, uh, visually, it looks great. Um, you know, they've done a great job with the crowd noise, all of that stuff. Um, I, I'm sure it's not something that the players are going to want to do forever. Uh, but I would think in a little bit, you remember how it used to be going to camp? It's got to be kind of, it's nothing but hoops. And it's got to be kind of fun to get to know a few of the other guys that you might not know or ever get to know or play with. Um, I would think it's got to be kind of cool. Yeah, man, it got to be cool. Safe, fun. Yeah. You get right. To continue to you may earn a living in a safe environment and promote the messaging and move the needle on social change. I think. I mean, listen, I'm listen, with you. It's perfect. I think you know from my standpoint. 
I didn't realize uh, until somebody told me the other day, and I'm I can be wrong here. Uh, they said they felt like that the the NBA was something like the biggest collection of wealth in the country, owners and players. Definitely up there. That's pretty powerful, man. Yeah. When and when you know, I heard uh, I heard Trump say the other day something about he called the NBA a political organization. What are they? A political? I, I don't know. You had Herschel Walker at your RNC, and you had. Um, Dana White from the UFC. Are they political or is the UFC political organization now? I don't understand. If I, all I know is if we had Make America Great Again on the floor in Orlando, it'd be the best <laughs> damn group of guys he ever seen. <laughs> you know what I'm oh my God. Can you imagine? <laughs> Holy shit. Damn. So all right, but back to Make America Great Again. Um can can you can you uh, I'm, I try to ask this? Can you state state for me when, what era, and, and be specific if you can? What era was America so great for black people that that they're talking about? Shit, I, I mean, from a economic standpoint, what you want to go back to Reaganomics? I just want, yeah. Well, I mean, has it? What what are they trying to get back that was so great for for black people? Yeah, but that was mass incarceration time. You yeah. Know? It was shit yeah. great then. And yep. that it was, you know, kind of years and then go back further. Yeah. So it, it yeah, it I've got a big problem with that hat. I do. I just do. Um, you know, I, I, I saw something the other day that said, you know, not all not all Trump supporters are racist, but all of them have decided that racism isn't a deal breaker. Yeah. And, and that's the problem. That bothers me. Yeah, me too. That's a hill. That's a huge problem. But you know, I want to pivot to basketball for a minute and talk about your beginning. Uh, we all had idolized certain players growing up, and clearly for me, growing up in Wisconsin, uh, Racine, Wisconsin, uh, Sidney Moncrief. I love oh, yeah. with Jordan clearly. But who was your guy? You know, growing up, yeah. my guy was Daryl Griffith. Oh, uh, yeah, Doctor Duncanstein played at Louisville. And, uh, you know, they won the title in 1980 and I was all, you know, I was probably middle school or, or great late grade school. Uh, I couldn't, I love Daryl Griffith. I loved Louisville. Um, also I, I love me some David Thompson and, you know, Oh, and what, that was one of my big thrills was, uh, when I got drafted by Charlotte, David had just quit playing, <laughs> but you know, he blew his knee out. Um, but he was working in the Hornets community relations. I was the first pick of the team and I had come into town and I was working out in the summers. And once a week he would come down and play with me and he would kick my ass, kick my ass. And then his knee the next day would swell up so big. He couldn't play for another week, but man, he taught me so much uh, those first couple years. It one of the biggest thrills of my life. You know, I never got to play against him in the league, but just, you know, and I did. I got to where I got better and better over a couple of years and just a huge thrill. But, yeah, those two guys in particular, Daryl Griffith and, and David Thompson. And they're both 6'3", six, 6'4", six, you know. Somebody I got familiar with was uh, Wes Unsell Sr. And I know he's – Oh, that's my guy. Yeah, like this – talk about – get to know Wes? Yeah, oh, I, had a, I had a great relationship with Wes. Oh. Together, man, we sat back. We had bourbon. We yeah, Cavassier. He uh, loved his some Cavassier. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> hey, man, we used to fly commercial, 
And uh, at times when I was with the Bullets and, uh, you know, Wes was our coach. And if we if we ever got it back in the day, you know, they had the barf bags, throw up bag back there, you know, in the back uh, of the, you know, on the plane. And you could also get from the flight attendants, you could get any kind of liquor. So if we wanted to get a day off, if we flew all day and we wanted to get a day off, every every player on the on the team would take one of those vomit bags ask the lady to fill it up with as much cavassier as she could get. And we just hand it to him on the way off the bus. He'd say, all right, see y'all tomorrow. <laughs> hey, what right, dude. Back in the day, man, getting wet. What was your wet? That's right. Just getting, just getting zooted. <laughs> I'm about to put that right here, man. I'll put that That's in right. my eyes. I got to pull that out one day. That's right. Zooted. Yeah. You uh, know, if you talked about, you know, back in the day and that transition, and I want to go back to, you know, when you was, you know, a, a first overall pick a selection for a brand new franchise. Let's talk about that experience, what that was like for you, you know. Yeah. I'm glad you asked. Um, I don't I don't get to talk about it a whole lot, but it was really weird. I was the youngest. Uh, well, I was the youngest player in the draft. I was the youngest player in the league my first year. Wow. Um, and Kareem was the oldest. I was 19 turning 20 and he was 40 turning 41. And my dad played against him way back in the day. How about that? Um, but what was weird was um, well, I was still a minor. You couldn't we couldn't have a beer in the locker room. And you can imagine how that went over in an NBA locker room. I was, I was made to made to go get beer from opponents locker rooms after every game, put them in a garbage bag, take it on the bus to the to the vets. That was your uh, duty? That was my duty, man. Uh, and I had to carry them. Back in the day, I, I had to also carry the the, the uh, ultrasound machine. Looked like I was carrying a, a you know, like uh, walking Oops. in with a, a referee's bag. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, but when I got drafted there, I went and I was moving in. I, I got an apartment and I was moving in and I got out in front of my apartment. I, I pulled up. And there was a, a couple standing out there with a little baby, and it was Dell and Sonia, and Stefan was just born. And they Dell had a broken wrist. We played the same position. He had a broken wrist. They helped me move my stuff in, and we've been the best of friends ever since. Sonia, but to tell you how just immature I was, I I didn't know how to do laundry. She, I my first road trip, she came over to wash some clothes for me. Uh, we got back off the road trip. We've been gone like 13 days. I had just gone out wherever we were on the road. I bought like 30 pair of underwear just because I didn't. That's how immature, man. I didn't know how to wash clothes. I didn't know how to cook. I didn't know. They they were basically raising Steph and, and raising me at the same same time. But one story that I, that stands out to me, man. And, you know, and, and the thing was, I, I could play I uh, after about a month in the league. I kind of figured things out, got the rhythm and the pace and all that stuff. But first month was kind of kind of tough. But the first night I held out for one week, my rookie year, I held out uh, for twenty five thousand dollars more. So I missed the first week of camp. Then I signed my deal and I'm going to practice the next morning, 10, 10 o'clock, my first NBA practice around 10, 11 at night. I I was downstairs. I had an apartment. First, first time I've ever lived outside of a dorm or at my parents' house. Mm. And so I'm in this apartment. It's got two bedrooms. It feels huge to me, you know, and I got nobody there. 
I turned the TV off and I'm like, I better go get some sleep. First practice tomorrow. I, I got to be ready. And I turned the TV off. I went and turned the lights off. I go to go up the steps and I looked up there, Karan. I'm 19. I looked up there and it was really dark up there. Yeah. And I was scared of the dark, man. And I just turned around. I went back down and I got on the couch, slept there with the TV on. I practiced the next day. And then that night I was like, man, come on, dude, just go up there, get it over with. So I got over my fear, went on up there and it was good. But that I, I just trying to say, you hope you're ready. I hoped I was ready. I came out after two years. You know, we were going to go on probation. I probably could have stood to stay another year just for my maturity anyway. But playing in the league is hard and, and people don't. I don't think people fully understand just all the pressure and it's a great life and it's a privilege. Don't get me wrong, but it's, it's tough sledding when you come into that league, man. And then you're not quite physically, you know, ready uh, or just, I, I couldn't even make shots. I hadn't had enough reps. You know, <laughs> you had, you know, you had plenty of reps at UConn. You, I, I had to learn how to make shots once I got in the NBA. I couldn't make an open. I could make them guarded, but I did. I also didn't know how to. I had to learn how to shot fake. I had never learned how to shot fake when I got in the NBA. I was just jumping up over everybody and trying to shoot it. Or, but I didn't know to. I didn't know how to shot fake. What about the skill like component of it? As you're touching on, you were super athletic, but was it the skill component of the game where you had to really like dive into? Um, it was. It was mainly. It was mainly, I think, just learning the, the offensive and defensive sets and the rules. I, I had a good feel where I could always I could pass and I could handle. I could, you know, put you put me in pick and rolls. And uh, so it was just a matter, really. Of, I got so much better from the beginning of the year to the end. My rookie year it wasn't I mean, it was pretty significant. And then, you know, you just kind of hit a rhythm and you hope to. I'm sure like yourself, it's hell being a young player in this league sometimes and that they, they pick on the things that you can't do right away. And if you can ever, if you could, it's like J.R. Smith. It's like uh, it's like uh, Jamal Crawford. It's like Lou Will. Their first four or five years, mine too. Oh, he's a gunslinger. It takes terrible shots. He, you know, and, and uh, not guarding anybody. If you can get like four or five years in, they start only talking about the things you can do. So you just you got to stay with it so you can get to be a vet where you can have a longer career. It's not about going to the league. It's never been easier to go to the league. It's about staying in the league, having a career. Specialist. <laughs> they consider you a specialist then, right? Right. right. A specialist. That's right. Yeah. yeah. When did you like it's interesting you say all these things like learning the game and working on your game and enhancing the game. But when did you feel like. All right, I'm Rex Chapman. Me as a basketball player, I have arrived. You know, that that I, I think I probably, you know, if you'd have asked me when I was a younger player, I'd have said probably like my third, maybe fifth year. But in all honesty, and I, I had some good seasons, uh, but I never made the playoffs until my eighth year. Never played in a playoff game. And the only time I and, – and that was because I got traded to Miami – and I played with Pat, for Pat, and we talk about it a lot. I think I had been a, I think I'd been a pro, making money for seven years. 
but I didn't become a professional until I got to Miami and learned how to work again, learned how to, how to be coached again. Um, and it really that year, and I wanted to stay and, you know, things kind of went sideways, but that set me up for the last four or five years of my career before my body broke down. And, and I think that was probably the years in Phoenix, those first, you know, two or three in Phoenix was where I felt, you know, the best, like for instance, where by that time Clyde didn't want to play against me. I always didn't want to play against him because he was so much older and better, or, you know, all that, but he was starting to decline and I was, st- I was writing my prime. And so you, you kind of, you remember that playing against guys that all of a sudden they come back one year and they go, damn, you look at yourself like, damn, I'm getting old too, <laughs> you know, but yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah, you did. And I, and I want to, I want to go back to like, we talked about when, when I felt like you arrived, as a basketball player, but also just as an all-star. I think it was one season that you was just balling. And I think a couple of weeks prior to, you know, the all-star selection where they gave you a twist your ankle. Yeah, man, that was, that was heartbreaking. Cause I, you know, I really want, I didn't want to be in the dunk contests when they, when they asked me to right out of college, honest to goodness, I wanted to, but I didn't want to go and just be a dunker in the dunk contest. I wanted to be an all-star when I went to the all-star game. Um, but they made me do it for a couple of years. I did it and I had a blast. Uh, yeah, I was having a really good year in, in Washington. Um, <laughs> also, full disclosure, full disclosure, the year Michael went to play baseball. <laughs> there's a, there's, a, there's a, uh, a whole new spot open now. So, but I was, I felt good. I had a good summer. I think I averaged 18 or 19 and, and oh, man, shot the ball really well. It was around 50%. Um, and the, the morning it was Martin Luther King holiday. I'll never forget. We were playing at home against the Spurs at a, like a noon game. We were having a blizzard at home and on the West coast had a big earthquake. And I went to, to the hole. I was going to dunk it. I left too far out. I you know, just kind of laid it in. I came right down on Dennis's foot and I dislocated my ankle. It came out of the skin, oh. all of that. But that morning, Abe Poland had called me and said, Rex, you're going to make the all-star team. I just want you to know you'd be our, fir- our first one till since Jeff uh, Malone. And man, I was so excited. Man. They took me off the court. I had to go to the hospital. They had to put, you know, manipulate it back in, knock me out. I woke up in my bed at home with a cast on my leg, still in my uniform. And ESPN was on showing where I'd been been replaced in the All-Star game. <laughs> Damn. Oh, I mean, I thought, whoa. Hell, it's just brutal. But, yeah, it just wasn't meant to be, man. There's an exciting new podcast out from Gimlet, Resistance, inspired by the summer's protests. These are new stories from the front lines of the movement from Black Lives, told by a generation fighting for change, hosted by Saheed Tajan Thomas Jr. Resistance is out on Spotify. Take a sneak peek and listen here. One, two, three, boom! On May 29th at 10 a.m., 
I got a text message about a protest from a friend. Grabbed my bag, had my goggles. I knew what to do. I like put on some pants because I was wearing my pajamas. Covered my entire face. Combat boots. Took our bikes, got on the train, and we just hit the streets. I was like, let's go, let's go, let's go. When people all around the world first started going outside and protesting this summer, I'm kind of ashamed to say I was on my couch playing video games. I convinced myself that I was staying home because I didn't want to catch coronavirus, but honestly, I was afraid of being let down again. We've been here before. I know I have. I've marched, I've yelled, and yet we keep ending up right back here again. So how come when protests started this summer, people kept saying over and over again, this time is different? What were they talking about? What were they seeing? So I went out. From Gimlet, I'm Saeed Tijan Thomas Jr., and this is Resistance, a show about people refusing to accept things as they are, people putting their lives on the line. I got sped on, kicked, called the N-word. They started pulling out their batons. They started charging at people. And the next thing I realized, I had like five police officers beating me up. People becoming leaders. Everybody! They are trying to strike fear in our hearts people becoming targets. These motherfuckers knock on my door at 7 a.m.? Eric, you're the one making this difficult. We're just trying to get you to come outside. My first instinct was to run. And some people, like me, who've been feeling hopeless for a long time now, are suddenly finding reasons to smile again. Let me see that black joy, baby. And low-key, they're turning the movement into the move like the Summer Jam or Coachella of protests. I'm just saying, like, it's a vibe. I've followed this movement for months now, and honestly, I still have more questions than answers. Like, how can we make sure this time really is different? What can we learn from the people who've been here before? And how do you keep on resisting when everyone else stops showing up? Look at everybody going back to normal, man. What the fuck for? This ain't normal. Resistance premieres October 14th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Black Lives, baby. Hey, hey, I'm going to tell you what was meant to be, though. When you talk about your resume sheet and one of the first things people will look up, uh, clearly one of the best dudes ever to do it, man. I love you as a human being, but the 96 Bulls, the 72 and uh, 10 team. Yeah. Somebody put up 39 on him, uh, on, on MJ when he was in his prime, man. Yeah. yeah. About Only about 12 of them were on him, though. Let's be honest. Hey, hey, uh, <laughs> this score on him. No, you know what's funny about that is that uh, there's a couple funny stories uh, that go along with it. One is I always say, you know, look, they were they were unreal. And we weren't in their league. They waxed us in three straight in the playoffs. Um, but they came in, you know, they came into South Beach playing. Oh, we only had eight guys available. We made a trade, and I think Tim Hardaway was coming, but we didn't have Timmy yet. So there was only me and Alonzo, Keith Askins, uh, Tony Smith. Um, you know, they weren't taking us very seriously. They came out and went up on South Beach all night, and I know that because I was there. <laughs> 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 and so so um but my son zeke 
uh, who he's 27 now, he was like three at the time, and he loved Michael. He loved the Bulls, and he normally would go to the games. He didn't go to the game that night, though, and we ended up beating him. I got 39. We beat the Bulls. I came home. I go inside. I go upstairs to my son's room, to Zeke's room, and he wakes up. Daddy still got his Bulls stuff on, wearing his Michael stuff, and we go downstairs. He get on the couch. He finally kind of wakes up and remembers we had a game. He goes, you played the Bulls. Did you win? I said, yep. He took off crying and ran back upstairs. I <laughs> couldn't believe we beat Michael. <laughs> he was mad. <laughs> Michael was different back then, man. I'm telling you. Hey, he was different. But the, the great thing about that is, and he and I, uh, David Falk was my agent, David's agent, um, uh, for or uh, Michael's agent forever. Uh, so we've known each other. We play, used to play golf together, bowl together, you know, uh, just good friends. And I got to know Michael's family, his dad, mom, and Charlotte, because they were at all of our games all the time, his brother and sister. Um, and we played against each other already for seven or eight years by this point. And that was either maybe the first or second time, I think the, only the second time in like eight years that I'd played on a team that beat the Bulls. You know, and we played them at home two weeks later. This is before the playoffs. This is near the end of the season. We played them at home after we beat them. And I went off in that game. Two weeks later, we're at the jump circle and, you know, dapping everybody up. And we're standing there. He and I are right beside one another. The ball goes in the air and he went crack and got me right in the sternum where I went. Oh, oh. and I went. Oh shit, it's gonna be like that, I guess. And it was exactly like that. It, I, I, he got like 38 and didn't play the fourth. I got like 13 on three for 13. And it was just they they beat us like a JV team. And then that's how they beat us in the playoffs, too. But but it just gives you a a little more of a window into a psyche. We're buddies. I mean, we never we had never really had a crossword. And that us beating them like that. He was he was steaming about it for two weeks. Damn. I love it, man. That shit's great. Yeah, that's powerful, man. And I want to talk about something else that's been, you know, powerful and a game changer for, you know, a lot of people from all walks of life. And that's block a charge. You know, how do those words go from a joke on social media yeah. to becoming its own TV show? And I remember when you came in and you gave us the shirts and the sweatshirt. Yeah. And I was just like, yo. This is crazy. It's a dope concept. Everybody crazy. from L Union to, you know, Reese Witherspoon, everybody. I know. It's crazy. Like, like where did you come from? It's crazy, Karan. You know, it, it out of nowhere. I, honestly, I wanted, I was ready to get off social media just because of the political climate. It, it was getting me down. And just one, one day I saw that stupid video of, a, you know, School of Dolphins swimming into shore and a guy paddleboarding out and a, a dolphin jumped up, hit him in the chest. And I said out loud, I said, that's a fucking charge, man. <laughs> and then put it out. People thought it was kind of cute and clever and whatever. And, you know, you just, you just hope maybe a couple basketball people pick up on it. Well, sports people picked up on it and then news people and entertainment. I remember out of nowhere, like I'd only been doing it a couple months and Arnold Schwarzenegger sends one and says, you know, blocker charge. Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> and then now what's so fun about it now is that so there's so many people that follow 
that, you know, I've grown up idolizing everybody from, you know, politicians to historians to uh, entertainers, athletes that, you know, older athletes that I, you know, I didn't know were on social media, man. It, it's just, a, it's, it's turned into a really beautiful thing. Uh, and it's all, it's all kind of silly and very unexpected. Man, it's, it's amazing, man. And I think that, you know, you, you're just a blessed individual. And speaking of being a blessed individual, you've been clean for over six years now, completely drug free. And I know that addiction was part of your life in a dark time. So when you yeah. think about people that's going through all these mental issues and these stresses of mm -hmm. you think about over 45 million jobs, un unemployment is at its all time high. When you think about what we see in, in our climate, you know, all the isms and everything. Yeah. Uh, one, how have you not been able to creep back into or yeah. creep back into that space? And then two, what are some of the advice that you would give to people out there that's, that's searching for just light? Yeah, you know, they're, they're really good questions. Um, yeah, man, I spent 14, 15 years painkiller addiction, in and out of rehab, you know, got in trouble, uh, got out about it's been right at six years now. Um, uh, and it's a it's a constant, you know, I, I'm lucky in that I don't like I don't crave pain pills. I, I'm very lucky in that that regard. Uh, but I, I've got to stay on it like I, I my brain. It's like my brain <laughs> after the opioids. It's almost like it, you know, it's running hot, running too much. And I got to I got to make sure that I do the things that I know I have to do every day. And and a lot of that, it starts with just waking up and going to get my my swim. You know, I swim all the time. I swim, try to swim five or six days a week, 100 laps every day. I try to do it religiously. Uh, and then I feel like I can tackle the day. I feel like I've gotten, you know, I've, I've, I've worked out some of the cobwebs in my head um, and I've sorted out some things away from the phone. You know, it's 45 minutes and I can kind of collect my thoughts. Um, as far as, you know, right now, dude, people are scared. And I, I think one of the and you, you've done a lot of good stuff, Karan. You're constantly giving back and, and so conscious about opportunities that have come your way. And, and I think that that's one thing that I'm, I'm happy about this silly Twitter thing. You know, when the pandemic came about, I just put out a tweet that said, hey, you know, we're going to raise money for COVID relief. And within like a week, we raised like three hundred thousand dollars. And we've been get we've been granting money to the hot spots, L.A., New York, New Jersey, uh, Phoenix just did a, you know, a partner thing with the Phoenix Suns, with the Pelicans. We're going to do one with the Hornets, different places that I played where we're going to give money for PPE and food banks. People are scared right now. And I've been scared, man. There was a and there was a couple of days and I've said this publicly before. There was a couple of days I lived. I was a lottery pick, man. Lottery pick, played 12 years, probably made close to $40 million. And six years ago, there were a couple nights I was sleeping in my car. And wow. Yeah. So I know what it's like to feel down and, and damn near broken. I mean, I had many days of just, just crying and trying to get my head right. And, uh, but what I do know is that it took friends like yourself, 
friends I played with, family members to that were there for me. And so when I say that this COVID stuff, it's a scary time. People are unemployed. A lot of people don't know where the next meal is coming from. And that's why I'm proud that we've been able to do a little something just to just to help during this tough time, because sometimes it just it's just you just need a, a hot meal and a night's sleep to think a little bit more clearly in the morning. So to all the people struggling out there, do yourself a favor and find a good friend, somebody you can tell everything to because bottling yourself up and keeping things isol isolating yourself and keeping them locked in. It's a recipe for disaster. And it especially is for addicts. Addicts, we like to isolate and get off by ourselves and not say anything to anybody, but going out, doing things, speaking, going to, places and speaking keeps me honest and it keeps me on my grind uh, knowing that I've got a lot of people look I, you don't you only get so many chances man right yes, better man. better take care of it while I can man, I, I love the way that you always find a way or see the silver lining situations and people with massive platforms choose to use their, their platforms different you know what I mean like yeah. I try to inspire uh, you do both. You have people laughing, inspiring, engagement. It's amazing. And, you know, when I think about my legacy, I immediately just pivot to the, my observation of what I want my kids to be and what I want people to remember me as. But more importantly, this family. That's mm -hmm. that's all I think about, and my loved ones. So, yeah. so with you, my last question, when you think about Rex Chapman, you think about your legacy and this time while you occupied this space on Earth, what would that be? You know, I, my kids and my, my, my kid, I've got four kids, 27, 25, 21 and 19 boy and then three girls. They're the greatest. Uh, I'm so proud of them. Uh, me and their mom aren't together anymore. We were married for 20 years. She's a great mom and has done an unbelievable job with these kids. Um, them, but also Quran. I've known for a long time that I was interested in in a in some kind of activism and uh, for instance when I, I don't know if you know this story but when i was at uh i was being recruited by all, you know most everybody in the country and i was going to go to really louisville kentucky or carolina and i, I didn't really want to even visit any other schools but georgia tech wanted me to come for a visit and a georgia tech's too hard i probably couldn't have gotten into school maybe they could have got me in but uh, a buddy of mine named Craig Neal was on the team. He was played with John Sally and Bruce Dalrymple and Mark Price. Those were the guys that were in college when I was coming through, uh, or getting ready for college. And I knew Craig from high school. And he said, hey, man, just come on, come for a visit. And I said, I'm not coming for a visit to Georgia Tech. He said, come on. I said, all right, if you get, I said, they just built the King Center in Atlanta. If you get the coaches to take me and you guys over there and I can spend a couple hours in there I'll come for a visit and so that's what I did and it was my best visit it was my best visit I just got lost in that place and I know I've been walking my walk since I've since I've been young and I've I've known what you know I've seen systemic racism I haven't experienced it I've had the privilege of only learning about it. So um, what, what we're doing right now, 
I think this is it, man. I think this is it. I think it's, uh, you know, we're always looking for more challenges and trying to get better as athletes and as people, I think. And this is a hell of a challenge. I, I really didn't, I didn't envision, I thought we were past all this. I really did. But um, that's on me. Uh, I'm not going to make the mis same mistake again. We just got to get everybody out to vote. We, if we do that, we'll be all right. That's deep, bro. Hell of a legacy. I appreciate yeah. it, my friend. I know. I appreciate you too, bro. Love you, man. Love, bro.